You're listening to Bodyful, a podcast that explores the wonder and complexities of living in this human form and how we can engage in an ongoing practice of bodyfulness to become more fully at home in ourselves and in the interconnected web of Gaia, the living earth. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and I'm the founder of the Gaia Center for Embodied Healing, where we support folks in their growth and healing work with somatic psychotherapy and embodiment practices. We hear all the time about the importance of being mindful, and it's time to invite our bodies to the party. Welcome to Bodyful. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Bodyful. I am so excited and if you're listening to this and you already know me, Val, uh, you know that I'm an excitable human. So I will probably tell you how excited I am at the beginning of every episode, but obviously the first episode is extra special and I really feel like this podcast is sort of a culmination of many different facets of my interests and where I see the body of my work going, pun intended, and I could not have asked for a better first guest than Melissa Walker. Melissa is a somatic sex and relationship therapist, educator, and author of Whole Body Sex, Somatic Sex Therapy, and the Lost Language of the Erotic Body. She offers somatic counseling for individuals, couples, and conscious non-monogamous relationships, as well as online workshops for those wanting to refine skills of relational and erotic embodiment. Melissa facilitates integrous learning experiences about bodyful eroticism and intimacy as a source of increased vitality, inspiring relationships, and healing of the whole self. Fundamentally, these offerings support allyship with sexuality as a transformative force within us all. You can find more about her on her website, embodiedrelationshipscenter.com, and You can find her book on Rutledge, her publisher's website, as well as Amazon, and we will make sure to include those links in the show notes. She was just a delight to talk to, and I hope that she is a new friend. So please enjoy this conversation with Melissa Walker. Melissa, thank you so much for being my first guest on the Bodyful Podcast. As you just now learned. It is such learned. an honor. <laughs> yeah, it's such an honor to be your first on this podcast. Yeah, I in starting to read your book, I'm just like, okay, I don't think you're that much older than me, but I'm like, I want to be you when I grow up. So, oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just. Um, I'll I'll have shared more in the introduction about your book and all of that, and we're going to get into some of those things and the model that you've created. But before we get into our thinking minds, let's kind of drop in. Let's take a moment to just kind of settle into our bodies here together across space. And tell me a little bit about what's present for you in this moment. Hmm. In this moment, I notice my heart uh, fluttering a bit. Uh, I can feel the excitement. Um, It's 
sort of bubbling up in my body. Uh, I can really feel my hips in my seat. Um, almost like one of those, those dolls that have like the beanbag butts and you sort of like <laughs> plop them down. <laughs> so I'm feeling some weight in my pelvic bowl, which feels really uh, warm and solid. I can hear my daughter playing outside with grandma. <laughs> and that brings a smile to my face. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm. And so for for listeners, just taking that brief moment to check in and notice is so powerful. There's so much information in what you just described. And what's beautiful about that sort of contemplative bodyful awareness practice is we don't have to make meaning of it. There might be meaning there that's useful, but we can also just kind of say, huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you for doing that. And I'll just say- Thanks for I'm, the invitation. Yeah. I'm noticing that I am grateful to have something to fidget with my nice little moss agate stone <laughs> here. Um, I am a, such a, a fidgeter. It's one of my self-soothing is to pick at my nails. So I'm giving them something else to do instead. <laughs> mm, beautiful uh, so, skill. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the first things that you say in your book, Whole Body Sex, is that the body is magnificent and magical. And I would love for you to just tell us a little bit why you think that is, why that's true for you. Yeah, I that the the beginning of the book came to me after I was deep into the book. And I remember watching my daughter learn how to she she put goggles on and she was learning how to dive into the water and hold her breath and that sort of thing and um so my daughter was born 2 months early. She was a preemie. She was born at 7 months. And there's all kinds of things that that can happen when babies are born that early. And I was watching her learn how to do an activity that was, uh, uh, it's a developmental process. It's a sophisticated thing to learn how to swim and learn to dive underwater. There's so many different body systems that have to coordinate to make that happen. And the words that came to me was, you are magnificent. <laughs> and I recognize that I, I see that in my clients when I see what they've been through in their lives and that they are still resilient and that they have found ways to soothe themselves and take care of themselves. And they've found ways to be in loving relationships and be, be successful in their careers, all these different things that even with the greatest challenges in life, I see people come out with so much beauty. And so uh, when we dive into the topic of sexuality, um, we are so often given the very clear message that sexuality is not beautiful and that it's something to be feared and mistrusted and only practiced within certain very narrow parameters. And I wanted just like my, my clients and my daughter um, and my readers, I wanted them to know that I see in them magnificence, mm. even 
when the people in their lives perhaps did not reflect that to them. Um, and maybe if they don't see it in themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. There's just so many messages from every angle about what's wrong with our bodies and why our bodies are kind of the worst aspects of, of humanity. And we should ascend to some spiritual plane where these are just the old coat that we take off and discard. And a big part of what I hope to do in these conversations is to really um, honor that sacredness of the body and how magical. And I feel the same way about, you know, the rest of the living earth too, that, that it's become just commodified and, and to connect with how, how alive all of this around us and that our own animal bodies are. are. Mm, absolutely. So to get to that, we do have to kind of speak about the, the flip side of where we are now culturally. And I'm just yeah. going to read this little piece from earlier in your book, because I think there's several really important points here. You write, um, the mistrust of the body and therefore the inability to speak the language of the body leads to adversity within the sexual self as seemingly competing needs attempt to be met. The realm of the body, sensation, rhythm, emotion, and impulse attempts to engage with what is interesting and pleasurable, while the social self attempts to express appropriately based or express appropriately based on sociocultural norms and expectations. The sexual self ends up being at odds with the social self. The result is a relationship between the social self and the sexual self, which can range from anxious avoidance to disembodied indulgence. There's so much there. So um, that last sentence, I'll definitely want to come back to. But, but this idea of how we are, many of us, unable to speak the language of the body I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about that and like, first of all, why can't we speak the language of the body and what does it mean to speak the language of the body? How can we do that or learn to do that? Yeah. Yes. Especially when it comes to our impulses around reaching for what is pleasurable mm -hmm. to us in the environment. Um, you know, we often receive the message that what what we're reaching for or how we're reaching for it is is not okay. Um, there there are the the things where oh if you reach for your like when you're a little one right and you go to reach for your stuffy it's like yes you can reach for that <laughs> that's fine. But when it comes to um, you know anyone with children knows that you know children get curious about bodies about their own bodies about the bodies of their parents and they go to reach for, you know, a part of the body that the parent finds uncomfortable, they can get, you know, either outwardly reprimanded or as a parent, our bodies can tighten up. Mm -hmm. and, and the child feels that there's a body to body relationship where they feel, oh, it's not okay that I, that I touched that part of mom's body or whatever, you know, um, because, you know, us as parents, as adults, we've already taken on so much of these negative messages about our own bodies, about our gender, perhaps, about uh, how we move our body, you know, those sorts of things. And um, it becomes sort of an automatic reaction in us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, being able to uh, learn the language of the body again you know, because we are a, a quite heady culture, mm -hmm. um, we still have 
remnants of somatic or body oriented language um, in, in how we speak, but we are often not speaking from, from feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. that is sort of relegated to like the arts, you know, I think about like spoken word poetry or, um, you know, visual medias or dance medias, that sort of thing is very emotionally expressive. And we highly prize that. But when it comes to us practicing that in our day-to-day life, we, we inhibit, we, we minimize emotional expression because we want to appear more logical or we want to appear more, uh, you know, professional or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in, you know, more, I would say, Western white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what that does is it really minimizes our expression, but by doing that, it also minimizes our experience of ourselves, our ability to detect what the the layers and layers of emotion and sensation that are happening in our bodies moment to moment, we truncate it so that we can give out a clever answer or, you know, sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just do the next thing and get moving and be productive. Like you were talking about commodifying things, we have to like get shit done, Mm -hmm. basically. and so what that has done is uh, devalued slowness, devalued uh, thoughtfulness, and, and therefore devalued bodyfulness, um, truly being in our bodies moment to moment. And yes, there's a time to move quickly and get things done, absolutely. And what we are sort of waking up as a culture, especially, um, you know, I, I'm here as a white woman in a Western culture, you know, that we're, we're waking up to, oh, we need to value slowness again. We need to value uh, deeper investigation into ourselves. And that's not an indulgent practice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is a very practical, practical, useful, heavily valuable practice, Mm -hmm. actually. Right. Because just like we did at the beginning of this conversation, that you know, if I had just thrown on record and said, okay, what's present for you and not taking that moment to slow down. It's like, well, hold on. I I have to find out. I have to Uh, actually like go in. Um, I heard somewhere years ago, this, this metaphor that I still love this idea of kind of like the ego is the fire hydrant. That's like just always kind of pounding into your ear. And then there's the, the intuition is more of kind of the well that you actually have to just go down into to see what's there. And, and yeah, that, that requires slowness. And I think like, I'm kind of preaching to myself a little bit right now. And I think a lot of people who are in a similar boat, because it's like, I know this and yet I sort of want it without having to slow down and it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's interesting though. We can have, our bodies can be moving quickly. And we can have a slowness of awareness. Yeah. It's it's really about the nature of awareness, exactly. right? We can be exactly. we can be jogging and moving very quickly or running very quickly. We can be, you know, dancing, you know, like a a a, a big chaos mm-hmm. dance, perhaps. Um, we can be doing big, fast movements. It's it's about the awareness that I have of myself yeah. that we can actually slow right. down. I think that's that's one of the things, you know, like with, we talk about mindfulness 
and meditation is you sit on a cushion and you hold still and you listen for, you know, 15 minutes twice a day or something like that. And that, that form is beautiful and elegant and important and it doesn't always have to look that Yeah. Way. Yeah. Thank you for that distinction because abs- I absolutely agree that it's, we can have that bodyfulness, that awareness, that slow, uh, deep awareness, even when we're moving quickly. And, and yeah, I'm picturing that, that yes. five rhythms um, dance. And yes, five rhythms. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's that <laughs> I, I, I always say that with my own brain, it sort of feels like a ping pong machine a lot of times. Um, so when I, or a pinball machine, both really mm-hmm. work, but a pinball machine. And so like when I'm in that level of awareness, that's not, you know, I'm not uh, being bodyful at all or mindful really. Yeah. And so really just yes. knowing that the body can be moving, but having that sort of center. Um, and and what you said in this in that quote too about the, well, there's the social self and the sexual self, which we'll probably dive into a little bit too, but that this sort of disconnect, this lack of speaking the language of the body will then result in either this kind of anxious avoidance or disembodied indulgence. And I think both of those sides are really interesting. I've worked a lot more Mm. with eating disorders than I have with um, sex in terms of clinical work, but obviously, you know, there's so many parallels there. And, and so there's like, okay, I'll either be like rigidly restrictive um, and controlling with my food, or I'll, I'll feel this sort of disconnect from my body and this sort of numbness and no interest in sex or the disembodied indulgence side of like, you know, what the hell I'll just, you know, have the, the, whatever they call the the Big Mac, whatever these days, I'll just kind of eat whatever and, and do that disembodied indulgence with food or with sex um, in kind of a compulsive way. So th- that yeah. sort of um, spectrum or pendulum, I think is, is exactly yeah. what happens with sex, with food, with so many things in our culture. And I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about that pendulum. Yeah, so the the avoidance part of it is where we start to um, have a lack of awareness or we shortcut what we're feeling. Um, and, you know, I work with people who uh, have very, tr- you know, have very tricky relationships with their bodies and it's not safe to be in their bodies. They've had experiences or they've been taught that it's not safe. <clears throat> to be in their bodies, to listen, um, that sort of thing. Because as soon as they go in to detect what's happening in their bodies, like, you know, we'll do in session, I'll have them slow down just as you had me slow down and, and say, what, what's happening for you right now? What, what is your body? You know, what's the sensations, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of people, as soon as they drop into their bodies, they experience discomfort. And as soon as we feel discomfort, right, we want to avoid that. We want to we want to get back to a place where we're not feeling discomfort, um, so that we can feel safer again. Um, not safe because it's total. It's not. It doesn't feel safe to be disembodied either, or to, to be disconnected. But mm-hmm. it's safer than feeling the discomfort. Um, and then there there are other people where they 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 have um, gotten so much in their head over the years that when I ask them, what do they notice in their body, sensation, emotion, texture, movement, rhythm, any of those things, 
they don't, they, they don't feel it. They can't detect it. They don't, they don't even know what I'm talking about, you know? Um, and that is a survival mechanism of the nervous system, which is brilliant that the nervous system has the ability to say, I've had these unsafe experiences in my body. I have this discomfort, this pain, this whatever in my body. We're not going to feel that because that is uh, preventing us from being effective in our lives and in our environments. And our nervous system has that beautiful way of separating us from, from what we're not ready to really mm -hmm. unravel. Um, unfortunately, over time, that becomes a character structure or a body structure that then we have to work very hard to change, um, which it can change. The nervous system is beautiful. You know, it, it can rewire itself. It can do all sorts of amazing things, um, but it takes intention once it's been, once that body armor has set in mm -hmm. so deeply. The other pendulum swing you were talking about was that disembodied indulgence. And what I was referring to in that in the book can involve any kind of pleasurable, semi-pleasurable, uh, compelling activity that we engage in without consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it could be food, it could be substances, it could be what sex therapist um, Douglas Braun Harvey calls out of control sexual behavior, um, where we compulsively engage in some kind of sexual activity that is not truly satisfying to us and, and could potentially be damaging to ourselves or relationships. But it's the one erotic pathway that works for us to help relieve anxiety or stress or that sort of thing. And so we do it over and over and over and over again. And, um, uh, you know, without getting a, a fully satisfying connection with, with ourselves or anyone right, else. Right. And I think like there can be a misinterpretation sometimes of like, um, well, okay. So if I'm listening to my body, then I seek pleasure. And, and I don't want anyone to tell me that like, you know, I shouldn't be seeking pleasure. And that's this like puritanical mm -hmm. and, and, and it's, so it's not ever, it's not about the behavior or the thing itself, but more the quality of disembodiment, um, like you're kind of describing. Yes. So I think that's a really important distinction. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what you're talking about there is so important because that was an, I think that was an important, it's an important developmental step when we, when we, you know, we begin in an environment, a cultural environment, religious environment, familial environment, whatever it is, where us seeking pleasure is punished um, or is rigidly defined. Um, like in, uh, for example, purity culture, um, uh, where, you know, you can only practice sexuality within a very strict confines and it, you know, uh, incredibly damaging and, and people mistrusting their own bodies. It's really, uh, it, it, I mean, I would call it, that's an experience mm -hmm. of trauma. Yeah. We got a lot of it down here in the Bible belt too. Oh yeah. We, we erotically marginalize mm -hmm. ourselves and, and of course the marginalized populations, suffer from that mm -hmm. the most, um, I would say, but we all suffer from it. Um, and so, you know, what, what ends up happening is we, um, have a, a reaction where we do sort of the exact opposite. It's like, I can't have any of this, so I'm going to go have all of it yep. for a while. 
because we we're compelled to do that exploration. That's the thing about sexuality is that it compels us to explore because it is one of those primary forces fueling our personal evolution. And I would say collective evolution as well, right? Our sexuality is the way that we reproduce and, and we not just with children, but creatively, it's how we reproduce. So it's how it is our, our evolutionary, uh, you know, birthright to explore our sexuality. Mm. So then, you know, what I do with my clients and my, my job is to bring in that intentionality into that exploration and um, bring in the slowness of awareness that we were talking about into the exploration so that, you know, we're, we're exploring what's erotically relevant for us, but with intention, um, with consent mm -hmm. also. Consent is a very important part of this. Um, that there, there isn't a violation going on um, unless that is agreed upon. So for example, in like the BDSM and kink communities, they will practice um, consent and consenting to have mm -hmm. no consent and you know, those sorts of things. They get to play with that concept in a very intentional environment um, when it's done, um, when it's mm -hmm. done well, you know, so that's, that's what really brings in that unraveling of that body armor in our, in our nervous system and our muscles and our tissues and all of that is the intentionality of it. It activates the, the deepest parts of our mm -hmm. cortex, the, the, the earliest, youngest parts of ourselves so that we can rewrite some of that um, intense rigidity and, and minimization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and definitely a similar rebound effect can sort of happen with food when people are first starting to allow yes. themselves like, oh, well, you're telling me I can get my body, what my body wants, what my body wants, cookie dough, and it wants pizza, and it wants, because it hasn't had all of those things. And so <laughs> sometimes it is kind of allowing that rebound with the understanding that staying in that place is not authentic either, and it's about the intentionality. So um, yeah, that's a that's so true. So as far as the, you know, how do we sort of, I don't know, I was going to use the word systematically, that sounds rigid, but I think like there are different pieces of the puzzle of kind of coming at this from all the different angles that we need to, to heal those, um, the sort of really unhelpful social conditioning and the just cultural rupture between mind and body and and just all the baggage that we have around sexuality. So um, you have created this whole system and I wanted to, to kind of get into that discussion of the um, erotic mapping by reading this little piece and then we can talk about it. So you say, when I visualize how a person experiences and expresses sexual energy in their specific social context, I imagine them at the center of multiple concentric circles, each layer contained within and impacted by the next. Like the body of a tree that also contains concentric rings, each layer produces an organic response to the environmental conditions in which the tree lives. Our body can also be seen as the center circle being impacted by the surrounding social and natural environment. The somatic concentric sex therapy model offers a clear map to navigate the ever-present dance between your erotic body and the social, sociocultural and relational location in which you find yourself. So 
very cool that you kind of through your experience mm. and your your research have created this whole model and also I'm obsessed with trees. So anything that alludes to trees, I'm just like, yes. Uh, <laughs> so tell yes. us more. Um, I know I can link in the show notes to uh, if you have on your website an image of this. I know it's in the book. Um, but tell us a little mm -hmm. bit just about, we'll get a little bit deeper into what some of these layers look like, but give us kind of the big picture view of this mapping. Yeah. So, um, the, you know, I, I sort of paralleled us with the body of a tree because, um, in a lot of ways we are so much like trees. Um, we have, we have a lot in common with trees actually. Um, in terms of how they how they grow and develop and how they're impacted by their environment. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you know who Clarissa oh, yeah. Pinkola Estes is. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I've recently been listening to um, the, the Dangerous mm -hmm. Old Woman um, and listening to, what's it called, The, the Joyful mm -hmm. Body. And she tells a lot of stories about trees um, and, you know, trees that have survived, you know, within such amazing, amazingly difficult conditions and they get all these scars on their bodies and yet they still live and thrive. And so much like us, we, we go through our lives and get all these, you know, scars and the environment impacts how we grow and yet we thrive um, with such resilience. Um, so yeah, so that the, the center circle of that is our internal, um, what's referred to as the somatosensory experience. So it's the basically experiences of our senses and how our nervous system takes in information from the environment, makes sense of it, organizes it, um, and integrates pieces of it, um, and then impacts how we express ourselves in the environment. Um, so that's the first piece that I'm looking at is that awareness of our internal experience and, and also how, how we embody our, what uh, dance therapists, what we call the kinosphere, which is the space that our body takes up basically from, from all my endpoints, my feet, hands, head. Um, and then there's also our expressive kinosphere, which can take us farther than our physical kinosphere, right? Um, so like right now, our kinosphere has gotten so much larger, we're expressing out into the, mm -hmm. into the ethers, you know, um, and we're, you know, thousands of miles apart and here we are, you know, um, and, and so the, the next circle in that model is the erotic bodyfulness practice. And that's that slowness of awareness, that intentional awareness um, that we've been talking about where it becomes the interface between what is happening in my environment, what is happening within my body. And I am inviting the awareness of my body to let me know what's happening. So it's even, it's, it's even different than, oh, I notice my, uh, I notice that my legs are crossed right now because in this chair, that's, that's the most comfortable way to sit, right? Um, that's a, a noticing of mind. 
when I shift my awareness into the noticing that my legs are having right now, it's that I feel myself, my, my legs are kind of swelling a bit because I'm cutting off my circulation <laughs> by sitting with my legs crossed. That is the awareness of my legs. And so the erotic body fullness practice is, oh, wow, I notice my legs are starting to swell and I can feel the pulse at, at the back of my leg. And this is becoming uncomfortable. And so I'm going to follow the impulse that my legs are telling me, which is to uncross my legs. And so I'm going to uncross my legs and rub my legs a bit and kind of spread out some of that, um, uh, you know, swelling and things that's happening. And then I'm going to take a moment and check in with my legs again. Now, what do my legs want me to know? And my legs want me to know that, that they're feeling <laughs> better, <laughs> not so constricted in this moment. Right. So that's the, the kind of shift yeah. in awareness. There. It makes me think I've had noticed this twice recently where kind of similarly, I've been sitting like in a car with my foot at this weird angle and I'll realize, oh my God, my, I've been sitting this way for like an hour. My foot hurts so much. I'm so sorry, foot. Like just, just the level of kind of oh, autopilot yes. that we get into. And I think that that having these, yeah, yeah. this kind of erotic bodyfulness practice just as a part of our you know, existence ongoing, it just helps us to deepen into that awareness in, in those day-to-day -day moments, whether it's with ourselves or with others. And, and I think like to the piece of the erotic, like I could imagine someone listening going, well, nothing that she's described so far sounds erotic. Why is this erotic? And, and so I, I loved this piece that you said about defining erotic, where you say the erotic is not just about pornography or sexy stories. It is a resource, the rich soil of the body in which we plant our seeds to grow. The erotic demands that we not take for granted the definitions and stereotypes we have been given, but to instead turn our awareness inward and listen, to turn toward what awakens the senses, what excites us, and what challenges us to get creative. When we appreciate a broader and more comprehensive definition of the erotic, we make a direct impact on the negative experiences and messages. We heal and transform relationship to sexuality. So yeah, I would love to just hear a little bit more about kind of how that expanded definition of erotic is uh, relates to this idea of erotic bodyfulness practice and just why that's important for us to really broaden our definition of erotic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because in my work, I, you know, I talk a lot about sexuality and the erotic and I often do not begin my work in the obvious erotic places, the more obvious erotic activities. Um, although we do start to apply it to those, those areas and those activities. Um, because truly the erotic is available to us in every moment. The, the erotic is at the edges between pleasure and discomfort, between what is what feels good and what is known mm -hmm. and what is unknown. That, that is the realm of the erotic. It's like a liminal space. Um, and for many of us, the erotic is found in the taboo or the, you know, the things that create both excitement and anxiety um, or excitement and shame or that sort of thing. 
Um, and when it comes to getting us into our bodies and listening to our bodies again and really finding a home in our, in our bodies and in our sexuality, um, it means being able to push against the edges of what's erotic and not shaming ourselves for it and not judging ourselves for it, you know, finding the spaces where it's safe enough to do that. And, you know, like I was saying, the, the erotic is available to us in every moment. And, um, you know, so with my, my legs being crossed, right. And that cutting off my circulation and it was starting to get uncomfortable. As soon as I uncrossed my legs, and let that circulation move more freely and got more free flow movement. Um, when we switch from, from basically bound flow energy, which is that constriction, that tightness into more free flow energy, that, that has the potential for erotic, especially when my awareness is on it. I get to take a breath around it. I'm rubbing my legs a little bit. What surfaces is an experience of pleasure. Yeah. And from that pleasure, we can connect with that, with, with our erotic body in that moment. Um, and this is for everybody. This is not just for able-bodied people, right? This is for everybody, people who experience pain, illness. Um, I, you know, I recently have gone through a pretty major surgery in my own life. Just last month, I had major surgery. Um, and so as I'm going through the healing process after having a uh, major surgery and a, a pretty radical body change, I've been practicing this the whole time and I'm finding it consistently where there is pain and I bring my awareness and I breathe around the areas of, of pain and discomfort. <sighs> my body begins to soften a little bit. Their pleasure mm. presents itself. And the erotic experience mm -hmm. presents itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that also speaks to like, just there are so many reasons that we can develop these disconnected or, um, can't think of the word I'm looking for, but contentious relationships with our bodies, not only from the messages that yeah. we're told about what our bodies are supposed to look like, but things like pain and illness yeah. and you know, this feeling of like my body betraying me or that it's not pleasant to be um, in contact with my body. And so I'm just going to kind of go out here somewhere, live in my head and, and that, mm -hmm. you know, not to minimize at all those, the pain of some of those experiences. But I think, like you said, there's ways that we can learn to develop a type of, of awareness where we can allow the reality to be there of whatever maybe the pain is and notice what else is there and just notice the quality of of being fully alive in in that awareness um because clinically i think what and you may have worked with more chronic pain than i have but um i think kind of the some of the best practice uh ideas around that are what we resist persists and it's really the the focus on the pain that intensifies yes. it so the more that we can al allow it to be there without directing the focus or our attention there that that's sort of where a lot of the 
the lessening of the impact of pain on the day-to-day life and can come in and quality of life can increase. Yes. Yeah. Whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, you know, when I hear you talk about that, I'm also thinking about mm. emotions yeah. are very painful at times. And, and when we resist feeling those painful emotions, as well as the physical pain in our bodies, yeah, it, it persists and it amplifies and it actually um, in, intensifies the power of our shadow, the shadow parts mm-hmm. of, of ourselves, which we all, we all have shadow parts. That's just a part of being human and being social and social mm-hmm. animals, you know, um, and the more we distance ourselves from that and don't look at it, the, the more contorted it becomes, the more powerful it comes, mm-hmm. it becomes within us. It's a good segue to this part where you were talking in the book about doing a five rhythms dance and kind of the archetypes that you're moving through. Mm. This was so powerful to see where you said that through our lineages and our lived experiences, these archetypes have been abused, usurped and minimized, as well as exacting these same abuses upon others. The sexuality of the maiden is stolen. The sexuality of the mother is subjugated to pain. The sexuality of the queen is pruned to fit tradition and the sexuality of the crone is invisible. Yet when it really comes down to it, all these assumptions fly in the face of the myriad of ways that sexuality is actually experienced at each developmental stage. But even if they are not our truest experience, these assumptions create shadows within us, nonetheless, as a result of the oppression of the mother tongue language of the body. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way to capture how these archetypes that we all experience can get twisted and distorted um, into ways where we self-abuse and we perpetuate abuse of others and, and systematic oppression. And it's... Yeah, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about just more shadow or archetype kind of stuff, but that really stood out to me. Yeah, yeah, and and we're really seeing another layer of these, mm. you know, cultural shadows playing out right now around, you know, racism and genderism and these sorts of things. And um, actually, the more we lean into it with awareness, and you know, with that you know, we don't have to be super confident. We just have to be willing to have the conversations and to, you know, navigate these relationships um, so that we can start to transform these shadows into something that we can be aware of. And and when we do that on an individual basis or on a one-on-one relationship basis or, you know, group relationship basis, that is like, you know, the, those are the micro movements of the larger cultural mm-hmm. change that really wants to happen. Um, because all of us are carrying trauma around that, you know? Um, and, you know, so when I'm, when I'm working with people who have been erotically marginalized, um, people who have been erotically exoticized, um, as well as people who sort of fit in the erotic archetypal world, Um, there are shadows in each of those places. And so us developing a conscious relationship with them is, uh, is just vital to us reclaiming our wholeness as, you know, beautiful sexual erotic beings. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. becoming aware of those shadows, I think, is of the parallel of kind of um, understanding yes. our implicit biases. That if, if we don't, oh, if we're yeah. not aware and acknowledging yeah. what we're actually carrying, then it's still there. It's just in the shadow and it's going to impact how we show yes. up in the world and relate Absolutely. to people. Yeah. And so when we have our awareness on it, we can say, oh, I'm doing that thing that I do. What's, what's another choice, you know? And, and when Mm -hmm. we, one of the first things that I do with my clients is I, um, I do their erotic mapping with them. So I have a very specific erotic map that I work through with my clients. So there's a, a realm of resourced sexuality um, where we feel, you know, we feel confident, we feel excited, we feel like we can very easily access that part of ourselves. Then there's the challenge area, the places where we feel both excited and nervous, um, turned on, but also feeling some discomfort coming up, right? It's that, you know, sort of double-edged experience. That's the challenge area. And then the shadow area is the third part of the erotic map. And so what I do first is I work through the, the, the more full bodied effortless part of our sexuality to say, where do you, and the question I ask is, what do you love to do? What is when after a stressful day, a stressful week, what is it that you cannot wait to go do? And for some people that's dancing or going for a run or meditating or having their Saturday morning cup of coffee when there's nothing to do that morning, no commute to do, you know, but whatever it is, I start to list all of the things that, that they love to do. And then we create, you know, as they're describing, people will start to move their bodies and their facial expresses expressions will change. And so that's what I bring awareness to first is, you know, do you notice what your hands are doing right now? Do you notice what's happening in the muscles in your face? And so really listening to that mother tongue language as it's speaking to them in that moment, what is their body telling them? And from there, we develop sort of a, uh, a resilience movement profile. Basically, it's their, their home base movement profile where they feel really good in their body and you know, maybe there's some kind of movement that's like, ah, you know, and there's a breath that goes with it. And maybe there's a visualization that goes with it. So then when we start to explore the challenge area, we get a movement profile for the challenge area. And then we start to explore the shadow area and the movement profile for that, which usually looks like a pretty intense fight, flight, or freeze response. Then we can say, you know, then they can start to access the resilience movements you know what do they need to do in their body to move from the freeze place of oh my gosh i don't know what to do here into you know out breath moving their arms again okay where's my where's my resilience right it's when we get stuck that that shadow starts to take over so by finding the resilience place we're helping um, to move through from that stuck shadow place back into a place of full body expression, back to the place of home. That's so powerful because, you know, I know you've talked about how this all gets applied, you know, through the whole person, um, not just their sexuality. Yes. But 
I th- and I think that's that's just such a crucial foundation because when it, when you first mentioned that what was the name of the first piece the first layer res- resource or the the place of resource yeah yes so I, at first I thought well if that's just you know sexual what if they have nothing there because yeah. some people might have nothing there in terms of sexual resource but when you described it in that way of like what what do you want to do. What do you love doing? And and you see people start to come alive and light up. Mm -hmm. We all have experiences of that. So to be able to feel that embodied experience, I can just imagine how using that sort of, you know, movement profile and, and that sensation. And then if I am working on my sexual kind of relationship and opening up and I'm thinking of, um, of a lot of people who might say like, well, I really love my partner and I, you know, I really want to want to be sexual with them, yes. but I just don't like, I just feel, you know, maybe they're in that kind of third, third place where it's, they're just kind of feeling frozen or numb and just disinterested. So that ability to notice when that's happening, not be afraid of it, you know, if, assuming this is not a situation where there's, you know, reason for fear. Yes. Um, that is Consent is important. Fire. Yeah, exactly. Um, that they're wanting to, but it's just their body is not on is seeming to be on board. And to be able to apply that same sensation of that from the resource place, I could see could be a, a kind of a doorway in. Yes, absolutely. Because, and one of the primary things I work with with the couples that I work with is this desire discrepancy that you're referring mm-hmm. to desire difference where, you know, one partner wants to be sexual and the other partner is just not into it. Um, or there's been some kind of relationship, um, uh, there's relationship difficulties where they're not desiring their partner, or there's something going on for them, you know, prior experiences, violative experiences perhaps that have surfaced. And so, you know, they don't want to say yes to something that doesn't feel good to them with their partner or, you know, there's a myriad of different reasons why this happens, but, um, but that in particular, I see it all the time. Right. And so number one thing is for the, for the individual, like that you're talking about that says, I want to want to have sex, but I don't want to have sex, mm-hmm. um, is to explore, well, what is your body telling you? This isn't about forcing your body to fit into a, a decision or a box, you know, it's about what, you know, Emily Nagoski talks about arousal non-concordance. There's a reason that's happening. Let's slow down and investigate what's happening there. What is your own relationship with your sexuality? Because really our first sexual relationship is with ourselves, you know, experiencing pleasure in our own bodies just by ourselves. Um, And so, you know, what is it that my body is saying no to? What part of my body is saying no? What is this no about? And when we get a sense of what our no is, then we can start to get a sense of, well, where's my yes in my body, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times learning our yes starts in a place that's non-sexual, but, but is highly sensual. So for example, with dancing, you know, Um, so like, for example, I have a client that was experiencing, um, uh, not, not wanting to be sexual with their partner. They had gone through a big, um, you know, life body transition and they didn't want to be sexual with their partner. And there were, you know, there was a lot of details going on, but 
um, this person loved dancing. And so their homework, um, I always give my clients homework, home practice, you know, um, and was to do some kind of a sensual dance form. And so they ended up taking uh, bachata and, um, and, you know, getting into their sensual body a bit more for themselves. And then that sort of opened up their erotic pathways again with themselves. And then they got to start to request from their partner what they desired because they started to realize what it was that they desired. A lot of, a lot of us, we don't even know what we want. We just know we don't want that. You know, we, we <laughs> yeah. don't want that kind of that, that sex is bad. I don't want that. And so what is it that I do actually want? What kind of touch do I want on my body? What kind of, what kind of movement feels erotic to me um, that feels safe enough to, to practice? You know, that's how we start to find a home in our sexuality again and honoring that. Right. And then bringing those, that the new awareness mm -hmm. to maybe a partner uh, is, is, is in that kind of challenge zone. Cause it's like, okay, well, I think I would enjoy this. Like there's some yes. excitement, but like, I'm kind of scared to ask for this or to <laughs> uh -huh. try it. And so hopefully there can just be that level of, you know, emotional safety and trust. If, if that's something that's being explored with a partner that, you know, knowing that it's okay to be, to have some anxiety. Mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, let's, just have some awkward sex. It's yeah, going to be fine. Exactly. <laughs> you know, just be awkward and, you know, practice how you want to ask for something. And yeah. you don't, you don't ask it in a way that feels sexy the first time. It's mm. fine. Sex yes. is not always about being sexy. Sex uh, is so normal. And there's a lot of things that go into it, you know. I am such a fan of just embracing awkwardness in all ways. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's how we learn, right? Mm. That's, that's what we dance therapists call um, uh, pre-effort expressions and mm. pre it's, it's not a full effort expression yet where I feel very confident. My body knows how to organize itself to successfully confidently do this thing, whatever that is. So the pre-effort is when we're learning something new um, or defending against something, but it's a learning behavior mm. and we're awkward and gangly and whatever, when we're first learning something, and, and how endearing and it's, you know, it's a part of the developmental process and it's okay, you know? Right. And so having, you know, with the person that you're talking about that wants to have sex, but doesn't want it for the partner. And I often see this, the partner will be, will be like, just tell me what I got to do. Like, I just, <laughs> I, I want to be sexual and let's just do this. I'm up, I'm open for anything, um, you know? And what I actually find is when we bring in this slowness, the person who's saying, let's just have sex, like whatever you need, you know, that that person, when they start to bring in the slowness, they start to open up parts of themselves too. Mm. Right. And so they get to begin to explore together. And, and that is what really produces that eroticism. Like I was talking, it's that edge between what's known and what's unknown. Mm -hmm. And so now both people, if it's a monogamous um, partnered relationship, um, and even if it's not, I work with a lot of people who are non-monogamous, um, you know, they begin to explore those edges together. And that in and of itself, with the awkwardness, with all of that, that in and of itself can be erotic mm -hmm. and create that erotic feeling. One thing I'm curious about is 
you know, as I told you before, I'm I'm not well versed in in kind of the field of sex therapy specifically, but I do wonder, it seems like what you're doing is sort of revolutionary within that field of like really overtly combining all of this somatic intelligence with sex therapy. And obviously I would hope that most sex therapists are, they're integrating the body in different ways. But I just wonder, um, as someone who is really uh, deep within that field, like, are other sex therapists using this kind of somatic language and 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 prioritizing that as much or because I know that within traditional therapy it's very much you know the cognitive behavioral therapy and and, right. and the body is not prioritized nearly as much as it should be it's starting to shift but still so yeah I would just think that's so much even more important in sex therapy and yet I wonder if the field is really there yeah that's a great question because when i first entered into the sex therapy field that was not my impression Mm -hmm. that that sex therapists were practicing body-centered interventions and and you know with their clients um because i mean the field of sex therapy in general is you know it started out and and in a lot of clinical cases there's still more behaviorist um and there's a uh, uh, there's still sort of a, a medical component to it. Um, and there are other sex therapists that are practicing more body psychotherapy, um, with their clients and at increasing exponential numbers, yeah. I would say. Um, so there's a few people that have been doing it for a while, like Stella Resnick, for example, has been doing a gestalt form of body psychotherapy for many years. Um, <clears throat> Holly Richmond, uh, is practicing, you know, body psychotherapy and sex therapy really beautifully. Um, she's going to have a book coming out here pretty soon. Uh, Peggy Kleinplatz mm-hmm. is an experiential sex therapist and sex researcher in Canada. Um, she's fantastic. So there are pockets of it that are doing really beautiful work, um, Uh, However, this is still a wave that's sort of crashing over the sex therapy world because the body was seen uh, generally more in a, in a behavioral kind of way, Mm -hmm. you know, more behavioral kind of interventions and, and not so much this bodyful way that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, And so, but one thing that my book does do differently is bring in dance therapy. Mm. Um, So I'm bringing in both the, you know, the, under the umbrella of somatic, I'm bringing in body psychotherapy as well as dance movement therapy. And there's important differences. There's tons of overlap, but there's some some important differences in those two fields Mm -hmm. because I'm really incorporating, um, you know, uh, movement and rhythm and, uh, you you know, bound flow, free flow, pre-effort, full effort kind of, um, practices with, with my clients. Um, and, and there are some dance therapists, sex therapists out there. Absolutely. Um, uh, but the, the way that I've written the book, um, I would say is different from other published Mm -hmm. body psychotherapists because I talk about both doing that individually as well as doing that with people in relationship Mm. in the book. 
Yeah, I've never really dug into the world of dance movement therapy. And I just mm-hmm. I'm like this podcast is going to make me poor because I'm going to want to do every training. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing some Googling. Um, I wanted to ask you, too, this was a topic that you mentioned you wanted to get into. I want to make sure I'd, um, to just see if there's anything more you want to explore around this, the inclusiveness around the range of expression and changing landscape of the body. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm, the, I, I feel like that's such a essential part of doing this work mm. is that we, I am not in the business of trying to get people's expression to look a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the sort of criticisms I think that's happened in the embodiment sort of realms. When we talk about what is, what is embodiment, there's a particular image I think that people get and, and the world of media doesn't help mm-hmm. us out with this. If I try to Google, an image of embodiment or bodyfulness or meditation, even I'm going to see a lot of images of thin, seemingly able-bodied, you know, white people Mm -hmm. basically. Um, And so there, there have been criticisms within the field um, that embodiment has sort of been appropriated by whiteness Mm -hmm. and able-bodiedness. And so when I'm working with clients, um, I, it, it, they are the experts on their body, even if they don't realize it or they, they haven't embraced mm-hmm. that within themselves yet. So what feels like they are more congruent in their internal experience and their external expression, that is their embodiment. Mm-hmm. So whether, whether this person has, um, you know, a physical difference or disability. Um, If this person experiences chronic pain for some reason, um, if this person is gender non-conforming, if this person is, you know, a person of color, um, if it's a white person in my office, if it's, it's up to them when they say, oh, this feels like me, right? Yeah. And that also does not have to mean that that person says, oh, I feel totally embodied and can totally breathe and I'm totally open. And it's not even about that. It's about in this moment, I feel openness in my heart and tension in my pelvis. Mm. And I'm, I am with my body in this and I'm loving my body through this. And this is my embodiment in this moment, mm-hmm. right? It, it's more about even when it feels like incongruence internally, it's that congruence between internal and external expression mm-hmm. and finding the places that feel safe enough to be able to experience that congruence. And there are spaces in this world where people do not feel safe to express outwardly what they're feeling internally. They very specifically change what they're expressing so that they can um, survive. Right, even something, and, like and, something like code switching. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, I, I just so appreciate that 
that is a very explicit part of your work and the way that you see um, your work that you do with clients and just being a person in the world because, um, yeah, there's just so much, like even just the idea of, like you said, the word of embodiment. I could imagine so many people kind of seeing that word and be like, oh, that's not for me. <laughs> that's for people who look like this. Yeah. Right. So really opening that up and, 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 you know, like you said, there's kind of this wave happening, thankfully, in, in many places yes. where it's like, oh, chair yoga is amazing. It's not like a, oh, well, if you can only do this in your chair, like, I guess here's like two stretches you can do. It's like, no, like, let's, let's talk about bringing a full, um, beautiful, rich practice to people in, in all bodies and, and honoring what, you know, that's, people are going to not always feel safe in a space that I'm leading and, and I can be completely okay with that. Um, so yeah, that's, it's so important. And even just that idea of like, it's so individualized. I remember I used to get so irritated when, you know, we're talking about like, Oh, non, um, nonverbal communication is so important. And like, if you cross your arms, like, what is that conveying? And I'm like, it conveys that I feel nice and cozy <laughs> when I cross my arms. Yeah. I'm not being a bitch. Like, get over it. <laughs> so Yeah, that is your internal truth. Yep. Yeah. And and then notice how we respond if we're like, you know, cozy with our arms crossed in front of us and someone says, Are you being defensive? It's like, well, well, now I'm being right. defensive. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think that our neuroception, you know, like you can't even see my arms in this shot, but like, you know, if I'm sitting here, but my, my eyes are open and, you know, you can feel the warmth in my voice. Like we're smarter than just thinking like, Oh, well she is closed off. So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's widening in your face. You're smiling and yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so much more. We, we take so much about the body for granted. Mm -hmm. And when we really slow down and ask what's happening in our whole selves, there's such a rich story there. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been such a rich conversation for me, and mm. I cannot wait to share it with the listeners of this new podcast. And uh, I just feel so good about starting it off on this note. Um, and can't wait to continue highlighting every page of your book. So thank oh, you so thank much you. Um, for doing this. And I just really appreciate mm -hmm. what you're, what you offer. Oh, thank you. It's been such an honor and I am very much looking forward to seeing you, the other guests that you have on here. You have some really neat people lined up. So good luck to you. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you feel moved to share it with someone you think would love it, that would mean so much to me. For show notes, head over to GaiaCenter.co and follow us on Instagram at TheGaiaCenter and at Val K. Martin, V-A-L-K-A-Y Martin. And if you're into animal stuff and delicious vegan food, be sure to check out my other podcast, Vegan and Vibrant. See you next time.